I'm Parker Milner, food editor for The Post and Courier, and I'm joined by contributing restaurant critic Robert Moss, and we're coming to you live from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival's Podcast Cafe. You're listening to the Charleston's Menu Podcast, a podcast discussing food, dining, restaurants, and everything in between. There are a lot of food podcasts out there, so you might be wondering what the Charleston's Menu Podcast will focus on. Well, that depends on the week and what Robert and I have been eating. We'll cover restaurants, dining, and everything in between. With many, many meals under our loosened belts, we could talk about food with each other for hours, but we figured that might get a little stale. That's why we'll be inviting chefs, restaurant owners, and beverage professionals to join us. This week, we'll be discussing pop-up restaurants with Tuk Tuk Sri Lankan Bites chef and owner Sam Four and Mansueta's Filipino pop-up owner, Nico Kagalanen. And uh, for this inaugural initiative, we're actually in an uh, unusual location. We're recording in the podcast cafe, which is really sort of a big plexiglass box at the uh, Culinary Village in Riverfront Park, North Charleston. Beautiful day, a little breezy, lots of folks roaming around. Uh, so a little different setting than most of the future podcasts, but it's a great day to be out recording in a, uh, a wonderful venue. Yeah, I feel like the sound is like vibrating off this tent and just all coming in here. But uh, yeah, have to. It's kind of hard to hear yourself talk and think, but we'll we'll do our best, right? Yep. One of my best things about you know wine and food is it brings so many different people into Charleston, and it, you, we're here on Saturday, so we're a couple days in. Uh, I've already been talking to a lot of different people, and one of the topics that comes up, you know, at these is sort of what's going on in Charleston today, because you know one of the reasons so many chefs and other culinary professionals love to come to Charleston is to check out not just the festival events, but you know, go eat at restaurants, check out everything that's, that's going on around town. And Parker, that's something that you and I have both been both thinking about, writing about, and talking about a good bit lately is yeah. the changing scene here, because it has changed a lot in just two years. Yeah, definitely. You you go down the main drag of King Street, right? And uh, that that's not always where the restaurants are that, that we're eating at these days. Yeah, for uh, sure. And, you know, I'm, I've been around a little bit longer. I remember we used to go down to East Bay Street. That was the, the one and only restaurant row. There was nothing on Upper King, uh, you know, when, 2000, 2002. So um, nowadays that, that whole landscape is, is shifting as well. Um, I did actually, you know, I've written some pieces. I wrote a piece for Charleston Magazine that just came out, I think, in the February issue about, about that shifting culinary landscape. And I sort of mapped out some of the, dining destination neighborhoods that you would never thought 10 years ago to go look for good restaurants at there's so many options and it's like every a lot of things are moving away from that downtown corridor and out into the out into the neighborhoods um i'll talk about my my particular fascination right now which is old corner grocery stores because the old neighborhoods um you know, on the peninsula in Charleston, the Cannonboro, Elliott Burr neighborhood, which is, you know, from King Street down to where the MUSC complex is. Well, those have been residential neighborhoods for well over a century. They were sort of the original suburbs uh, of Charleston. And back before there were cars and supermarkets, at the corner grocery stores in every corner where if you lived down there, you could walk to, uh, you know, to pick up your groceries, et cetera. And, of course, those all shut down after the supermarkets came along, and a lot of them sat boarded up for a long time, but now they're getting uh, repurposed, and many of them into restaurants. So I'd say most of the restaurants in that neighborhood I've reviewed in the last year are in old corner grocery stores. Vern's, which just opened up in the summer, uh, Dano and Bethany Hines, uh, veterans of McCready's, they took over. Actually, Trattoria Luca, Ken Vedransky's restaurant, was there for, for many years uh, in, the, in the old grocery store. But to me, that's sort of where fine, a lot of the interesting fine dining is moved to. It's a little more casual, a little more low-key than the old white tablecloth restaurants. 
uh, but the food's very serious. The hospitality is great. In Vern's case, in particular, the wine is fantastic. Bethany Hines is a I agree. wonderful yeah. uh, sommelier. Uh, has really put together a list of about 100 just fantastic wines that I've never heard of and never would have picked myself, and so I just let them guide me. And I love how she does great. the list, too. She does it uh, f- by weight, right? Yes. So it's light to heavy, which is, if you're not... Uh, if you, if you don't know wine that well, it's a pretty uh, approachable way to, to go yeah, about particularly it. Particularly because I'm, I'm rarely sit down and say, I really want a wine from Germany. So let's go to the German section. Or, you know, it, it's much more like, well, I'm, I want something light or I want something dark and robust. You know, that's much, a much more helpful way to me to, to guide you through the wine dishes. So that's just one of many. Uh, Chubby Fish has been a favorite for a couple of years down in the old grocery store. Uh, Chasing Sage is in the old grocery store. Laurel is in an old grocery store. Um, Old, old corner grocery so that that's that's where a lot of the really i think interesting new restaurants are in charleston right now at least what i call the sort of independent restaurants often being founded by veterans of other kitchens who are sort of going out and opening their own place but i did want to ask you because i know just recently you were into a, a very different type of new restaurant <laughs> here in charleston a little bit different than the yeah the small corner yeah grocery. definitely I, i've uh been twice now to sorelli uh which people, it, it is kind of hard to pronounce, I guess, but I put, uh, yeah, it is Sorelli, I've confirmed. Uh, so it's a project by Michael Mina. Uh, for, for listeners who don't know who Michael Mina is, he's from Egypt uh, originally, and he's got over 40 restaurants across the country um, in some big-time cities uh, like D.C., Las Vegas, uh, and even Dubai, believe it or not. And so... I mean, first of all, for him to choose Charleston, that's a big deal, right? Um, we, we have what you might call celebrity chefs here, but uh, normally they're, they're kind of homegrown, right? Yeah, it's a little different. Um, you know, and you know, the story of Charleston the last five years or more is that more and more hotels, you know, downtown's booming. We went from, you know, the, actually the Charleston Wine and Food Festival, uh, the whole mission of it when it was founded, what was it, 2006, I think, maybe the first one? Um, the whole mission was to shine a light on the Charleston restaurant scene because there was a lot of interesting restaurant activity going on here, but we really didn't have a national reputation. We really weren't on the national radar. And damn if it didn't work. Um, I was talking to Mike Lotta Fig uh, a few weeks ago, interviewing him for a piece, and he, he said that the real turning point for Fig was that wine and food festival, and it brought Johnny Apple down from New York, from the New York Times, who he wrote up Fig, in this glowing article in New York Times, he said it really just, that, that was sort of like when their rocket <laughs> took off. And from there on, they were, they were super busy. So the Wine and Food Festival really did you know, propel us. But it's the, the restaurant tours, we've not been really a place where the big international restaurant groups have come to open uh, restaurants. We had a Ruth's Chris for a while that is uh, now shuttered. You know, so, so we've had a few of the sort of, now it's a locally owned cocktail yes, bar. Yes, now it's a locally owned bar. So it, it, it's not really been a kind of place uh, that where you see the, you know, the big, big, glitzy restaurant groups. So I thought I think it's interesting about Sorelli uh, and Michael Media coming here. I'm guessing they did a little research before they sunk that much money into a yeah, the building. Yeah, that was uh, yeah quite a project. Um, it's a couple historic townhomes that they actually combined together, and so if when you walk in. Uh, when they combined those townhomes, it, it created some really, really interesting sight lines. For instance, you walk in, and like through this stairwell, you can see into the bar. It's, it's kind of cool. And if you walk up the stairs, you can see down onto Broad Street. Uh, but there's the Marquetta, which is uh, kind of just a, a, a nice 
cafe, coffee shop, but they are doing some serious sandwiches there on house-made bread, slicing mortadella. Um, really impressed with, with that aspect of it. Now, I know it's Italian, so obviously lots of pastas and things like that. Um, any, any other... Yeah, yeah. So they, yeah, pasta. They have they do six types of pastas: um, two dried uh, that they import from Italy, and two house made, a a spaghetti and a bucatini, and then two stuffed uh, pastas. And if you do go, they have uh, this tortellini called Pillows of Gold that um, I don't want to sway your opinion, but I mean, melts. Man, was that good? Yeah. So any is it seem? Is there any low country? elements to it have they tried to incorporate any of the local food you know they, they uh, I, i'd say where you see that the, I, I wouldn't say it's uh it's super prominent on the menu i, I think that some of the seafood dishes um they're they're getting some local black bass uh they did a swordfish piccata when i was there and i know a lot of this is gonna change because i went uh, i think two nights after it opened uh <laughs> they had some some really lovely appetizers uh the the big-eyed tuna crudo uh with these like dehydrated apples, so th- there's some uh, there's some really fun dishes on there. You're you're gonna pay for them, I think. Uh, y- y- you know, it- it's like it's like a lot of the the restaurants. Uh, the fine it's a fine dining restaurant, and you're yeah. gonna pay for it. And the dining room uh, is is gonna be loud. And some people like that, and some people don't. But it's it's a lively it's a lively fine dining environment, and it fits in with a lot of what we've talked about yeah. and the changes there. Well, I'll definitely be paying a visit in a, in a while. I'll give him a, give him a little while to get their um, feet under him. But um, I th- to me, it's still a question mark. Is like, is this the first of a wave of similar sort of big ticket, very high end uh, restaurants from from established you know national restaurant groups? Are there, are they more coming in the wake, or is this be more of a one off? Yeah, be curious to see. It's really interesting, particularly because Michael Mina does not out of all of his restaurants, he does not have an Italian one. So this is like. A prototype mm. Italian one, and it's pretty interesting that he chose Charleston. So uh, it will be interesting to see if if others follow, and also uh, if maybe that gets Charleston recognized by the Michelin Guide, which we we, we all know the stars. Uh, there's problems with that system, yep. but uh, they're they're in Orlando and Miami now. So uh, I, I'd I'd put our uh, our restaurants right up there with those cities. So okay, so we'll see. I, I feel like you know. Since I've been in Charleston writing about food, we've sort of gone through a couple of waves. We sort of had the new southern wave, which I think was epitomized by, like, Snob and, uh, and Magnolias and, uh, and, and, and those types of, of restaurants. Uh, Lewis's Charleston Grill originally, which is now is still around, is Charleston Grill. Um, and then we sort of had that next generation that came along, uh, first with Husk and then with Upper King Street, as Upper King Street really blew up with the dearly departed Macintosh and uh, a lot of those, those other great restaurants up there. And then we've sort of been bouncing around a little bit since that time, sort of in the Airbnb hotel era. And I feel like we're finally starting to get to the third, at least the third stage of my experience uh, dining out here. Yeah, there's there's a lot to a lot to talk about with food, obviously, and we we can't always write about it. It whether the story just doesn't come together, it doesn't make sense, and so that's why uh, we're really looking forward to 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 discussing uh, you know the things that we're seeing when we're going to restaurants. I'm Parker Milner, and I'm the food editor of the Post and Courier, and this is Robert Moss. He's uh, our the contributing food critic for the Post and Courier, and we're joined today by. Sam Four from Tuk Tuk Snack Shack and Nico Cagalanen from Mansueta's Filipino Pop Up. Mm. 
Thank you, thank you. Thanks thank for having us. Thank you for us. having me. Well, how are you guys enjoying the festival so far? Good. It's, it's been far, uh, fun so far. Like, a lot of, uh, met a lot of friends already. Yeah, it feels kind of like summer camp. You know, you get to, it's the first <laughs> yeah. big southern one of the year, and, like, everybody comes to this. It's so much fun to get to see everybody, yeah. to get to collaborate with new chefs, and, yeah. honestly, to catch up with all the good folks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and th th those listening may not be able to get the scene. We're sort of in a plexiglass box uh, under a tent yeah. uh, out at the uh, Culinary Village. So it's early in the afternoon. The, the, the crowds are starting to stream in here. Still not too, too warm. So it's a nice location for a little podcasting. And it yeah. has a very squishy couch. Yes, yeah. it does. Yeah, yeah. That looks comfortable. Yeah, Wicked comfortable. Just need a pillow right now. I think they just uh, let all the guests in, too. So it's gonna about to get really crowded. Oh, um, man. Maybe, why don't we start uh, by just learning a little bit more about uh, your culinary background, Sam. How did, where'd you grow up? How'd you get into cooking? Born in Kentucky, raised in North Carolina, and uh, had a tech job until about seven years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I, I worked in tech. I was only a, a hobby cook for my friends and my yeah. family, you know, and then, then people decided that I could cook, so I had to start cooking. Yeah. That's you know how it goes. I, I, it's, yeah. That's how it I goes. I started with a different career, and now yeah. I'm cooking. I used to be a nurse. Oh, and wow. now, yeah. And so I was a marketing major. When I got out of grad school, I started doing restaurant websites and my clients were like James Beard nominated and winning chefs, yeah. but they didn't know that I could cook. And so every once in a while I would take stuff in and I wouldn't think anything of it. And when I took a sabbatical, they told the chefs in Kentucky what I was doing. I would pop up a 10 by 10 tent behind a bar nice. in a dodgy neighborhood and uh, we would sell out every night. That's and it awesome. showed me that there was an appetite for Sri Lankan Sri Lank food. Yeah. And it's interesting because, like, as a first-gen kid, you don't expect that. Like, you're yeah. supposed to go into a professional, like, doctor, lawyer, nurse, mm. accountant, engineer, dentist. Yeah. That's it. Same. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, my, my folks were just like, what? And it's <laughs> taken me on this huge journey. Like, I, I mean, I started it back at the bar, and last year I was cooking in a tent at the base of the mountain in Aspen. Mm. So it's like, it wasn't supposed to happen this way, but I'm very happy it did. <laughs> yeah, Nico, I know you had a, you didn't start off originally in, in the culinary world either. You sort of came to the U.S. to pursue a different career. Yeah. Uh, I graduated as, uh, with my BSN bachelor's in science in nursing and uh, moved here 2011 in the U.S. And uh, I worked in a nursing home for three years and then kind of like decided like wanted to learn how to cook. And then I did just watch YouTube. I didn't go to culinary schools. So I just watched YouTube, read cookbooks. And then I decided to ask my friend if he, he can recommend me to a restaurant that would like take me as like a new guy. And uh, then from, from then I was just like, I flipped career and like I didn't go back. I didn't look back after that. You can't go back. And then my, and then my family was like, what the hell are you doing? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> my and family is still like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You, you mentioned your tent. Um, mm -hmm. What is it like setting up a tent oh, for a pop-up? Oh, oh, everything humanly possible will go wrong. That's that's the, like the heaviest part of doing pop-ups. Yeah. Like loading, unloading, and like bringing stuff. I'm like loading a ten by ten tent that I bought at Walmart for, into an Acura sedan, <laughs> and like also loading food and tanks and the fake three compartment sink that we had to run. Like they have yeah. so many requirements for it. Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. Because you get inspected. Do you get yeah, yeah, inspected yeah. every yeah. time? Yeah. yeah. So the, the health inspectors will inspect you every time. So you have to be spot on. Uh-huh. If anything's wrong, you've lost all your prep. You've lost everything. Yeah. So you have to be consistent. You have to be able to follow the rules that they set forth. And you have to be able to be graceful enough to, with it that you can set up at other places. Yeah. You know, I called my business Tuk Tuk because it was mobile. And... You know, we'd show up at a bar, we'd show up at a restaurant. Now I do restaurant pop-ups and mm-hmm. festivals primarily. Mm-hmm. But the mobility of it was really enhanced by having yeah. a, essentially a 100-square-foot restaurant that yeah. I could take with me. Especially with in, in the, early, in the early, st- er, early days of our pop-up, it's just like the hard part. It's like nobody knows wh- who we are. And it's like if you sell something, great. If you don't, it's, it sucks. Yeah, I got, I mean... Even breaking even would have been considered yeah. super exciting. I, got, I made my money back the first night. Everything I invested into the tent, the licenses, yeah. all of that, I made it back the first night. It was insane. And it's a really interesting challenge because I'm actually about to go brick and mortar. Yeah. And so I've learned so much from catering kitchens and prepping for these sorts of events that I, I have a mind of like how I want my kitchen to look. So if yeah. I ever end up in a pop-up yeah. situation, I won't yeah. be stressed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we definitely want to get into both of your restaurants um, in a in a minute. Uh, where so I, I know in Charleston, breweries, distilleries, neighborhoods—that's kind of where the pop-ups are. What about in Lexington? Where are you popping up there? Bars, restaurants. Yeah. Anybody? Honestly, after the pandemic, it became a way to get people to go back to restaurants. Definitely. Because people were excited about event, and even if it was something that wasn't widely supported during the pandemic it brought more visibility to it. So I would do very small restaurant takeovers. I would yeah. do pickups from like a local coffee shop during the pandemic. And now I get to cook in really nice restaurants <laughs> because I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's progressed to that point. And I'm very, very happy about it because, you know, it's nice equipment and not yeah. having your ankles yeah. in the mud and not knocking, you, you don't know. don't have to bring your fryers in the tent. <laughs> yeah. That's you like... know, I used to drive around at like 3 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> yeah. hot fryer oil buckets, <laughs> yeah. looking that, for somewhere to dispose of them. All those dangerous turns with your oh. fryer in the back. No, 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 like... no, no. You coast into the Yeah, back. yeah. You do not take Oh, my God. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, the poor sedan until yeah. I got a pickup truck. She had <laughs> Nice. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask about that because I, I think, Nico, you started off uh, doing your pop-ups at breweries, but breweries. I think nowadays you're mostly doing them in, in restaurants. Is that right? So yeah. are you able to work mostly out of their kitchen, or are you still doing a lot of off-site prep and loading in? Uh, so now I've been doing like a lot of collaboration out of states, like different cities uh, out of South Carolina. And uh, it's great because like, I get to use their, their, their restaurant. I don't have to prep outside of that restaurant, so I don't have to bring the food that I prepped to the restaurant. Now it's just like me going to that restaurant and just like, it's like chilling now. It's, it's like it, a it's, luxury. It's everyone, yeah, yeah, yeah. everyone is looking at you like, don't you think this is hard? I'm like, no, yeah. this is and amazing. Like, you get paid to travel. Like they pay for your expenses, your flight, your hotel. It's like. And the nice thing about getting to work with other chefs in their kitchens is that you can learn a lot from them. Yeah. And for, I'm guessing for you as well, without the culinary school background or anything yeah. like that, it comes in really handy because yeah. you learn all sorts of tricks to make your life easier. Yeah, what are what are some of the things that were really hard for both of you when you were getting started just uh, just with the service element? Prep kitchens were very hard yeah. to That's find. Also, like, looking for a space that will let you do a pop-up there, especially, like, you don't have a name yet. You're just starting out. 
it's hard to like go to that uh, restaurant and ask for like, hey, can I take over your restaurant for like two days? This is this is my name. I don't have a culinary background. I'll just wing it, and it's just like. See, I would do that, but I would take snacks with me. Yeah. And be like, I can make this at your bar, yeah. and you have a captive audience of drunk people. Yeah. And because that's what I could never understand is like food trucks would balk at going to certain bars, and I'm like, you have a completely captive audience. Why would you do that? Yeah. That's a guaranteed. That's guaranteed at least yeah. making your food cost back. Yeah. yeah. Well, both of you guys sort of came through less traditional routes to, to becoming restaurateurs. I don't think there's anything traditional about either of our yeah. routes. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I was going to ask, you know, because it used to sort of be you go to culinary school, you, you intern, you get a job out of culinary school. Do you feel like that is still a relevant path or is that becoming less, you know, less relevant with the other avenues that are out there? I mean, yes, yes and no. It's like there's... A lot of like pros and cons. If you go to culinary school, you learn a lot of basics and like all those uh, marketing stuff, uh, which is like not taught when you're you're like learning by yourself. Uh, but also like going to culinary school is like so expensive, and it's just my way is like I didn't go to school, so I did a lot of stodging. Like uh, free, I went to a couple of like Michelin star restaurant and like work there for free so i learned like good amount of techniques and stuff so that was like how i i, I learned stuff i um a if you ever want to get a kitchen job and learn culinary real quick just start as the dishwasher it always works uh i took a job in a prep kitchen just dicing vegetables for meal prep after i started the pop-up Nice. But I didn't have any, like, I know how to cook en masse because of the Sri Lankan community. When diaspora communities get together, it's usually 40 to 50 people coming over for dinner. So we don't, we don't cook small. So yeah. cooking in volume wasn't a challenge. Sourcing, yeah. finding things. So culinary school is very handy in that you learn those basics, but you also get the avenues that you can route through for sourcing, for mentorship, for all of those things. You have somebody like me that comes in, and nine times out of ten, they're like, why are you here? <laughs> yeah. Because it's, it's not a real sort of thing to them. But the thing about being a tent chef is that every variable that you have in a kitchen yeah. is generally standard. Yeah. In a tent, it is never standard. Yeah. Some fuse will blow, something will blow over. Yeah, you, you we really, make things work. You become more of a problem solver. Yeah. And so I think of my job not as a chef, but as somebody who essentially just puts out fires and solves problems all day. Yeah. We adapt. Very much so. Yeah. You mentioned cooking for your community. Uh, if somebody's never had, I know, Nico, that's a big part of Filipino cuisine as well. If somebody's never had Sri Lankan cuisine, how would you describe it to them? And, and what is it, uh, how do those meals bring, bring community and people together? I mean, I like to give them the FOMO aspect of it and just tell them that they, they're missing out completely. <laughs> um, I'm kind of a jerk like that. But <laughs> I, I describe Sri Lankan food as the love child of the best flavors of South Indian cuisine and Thai cuisine because you have a lot of coconut milk, you have some lime sourness, you have tamarind, you have all the spices from the region. And then Sri Lanka is very heavily colonially influenced. Nice. So between the Portuguese, the Dutch, and the English, you've got interesting little dishes that are all their own. What I do is I put everything that I would put into a chicken curry into my fried chicken brine. 
And so that's how I expand it beyond the community. But when it's the community, it's big old bowl of rice, super homey curries. Like, really make it something that evokes a feeling of home. Yeah. Yeah, Nico, you, uh, in in the Philippines, uh, maybe talk a little bit about about, uh, Kamayan, Kamayan dinners. So I just did a Kamayan dinner last night. My first uh, signature dinner in for Charleston Wine and Food. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, it was like a very long table. This is like a very traditional communal way of eating in the Philippines. Very long table. You put banana leaves on top and you dump all the food on top of the, of the table. You use your hands. There's no silverware. There's no plates. It's just like you use your fingers. So you, nobody was like using their phone last night. It's, everyone is just like enjoying the you food. You can't, right? You can't. <laughs> yeah. You can't. It's gross. Well, you're both on the verge of uh, going to brick-and-mortar restaurants now. And I know, Nico, you were in workshop for a little bit. And yeah. so um, I'd be curious to get your takes on food halls. And, and, Sam, if you looked at maybe being in a food hall, is that something that could transition to brick-and-mortar? Or is it something that can be I have so uh, many a distraction? On this. <laughs> <laughs> I had – I started Tuk Tuk in April of 2016. I have had seven different opportunities to open a brick and mortar, and I didn't do it until now. Yeah. Not all opportunities. A lot of the food hall leases are a little bit predatory. And yeah, you can't see this, but we're both like really opening our eyes and nodding (laughs) at this because a lot of those leases are predatory and they don't put the business in a good place to succeed. It's expensive. It's so expensive. 35% of your profit. And some people are like, oh, we'll just take some off the top. But then that doesn't stop. You know, it's you want to be able to reinvest into your business. And so I love the pop-up route for that because it really kind of shows if your concept is going to work. And then if the food hall is the right fit for you, awesome. It takes all kinds. But for mine, it, it couldn't be because there's not a lot of representation of Sri Lankan food. Yeah, and also yeah. strikes me is with the food hall, well, people go get their beverages over here and then you know, they'll get food from one stall, food from another, eat in the common area. So you don't really have that audience who's there or your, that clientele who's there for the whole meal. Yeah, yeah. how do you, you take care of your people up. if you don't have a front of house at all? Yeah. 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 And, if you, and you aren't really providing the hospitality while they're out eating. You're just providing it when they're picking yeah. up the counter. That's always struck me as sort of a challenge with that, yeah. there's that no, format. There's no service, like a full service experience. It's just like you go in a counter, and then that's your interaction. It's but like, the other part of it is, is that if somebody in your party is having like a negative experience at the food hall, ultimately that's going to come back on you. Mm. And so your business is kind of at the mercy of everyone else as well. If this vendor isn't open, maybe you're going to lose some of the backup traffic. If this vendor is having an event, maybe you're not going to get the traffic that you normally expect. It is much more difficult to predict in my opinion. Can can you tell us a little bit about about the pending location of Tuk Tuk? Where is it going to be? So I am going to be um, about three minutes from my house. (laughs) Nice. That was was the first time. That is a very good move. I'm like, this is close to my house. Is it three minutes or 30 minutes? Three Wow. Hi, I live in Kentucky, man. Wow. <laughs> I, could I actually ride a thought horse I heard 32. Yeah. I was going to be surprised. That's I could awesome. ride a horse to work and get there in <laughs> yeah. five. So um, I am opening in a relatively new development in Lexington. And the space has been like three or four coffee shops. So 
I basically get a white box that's five years old without mm. all of the new construction problems. Yeah. Mm. All the plumbing's in, all the gas is in, everything's turned on, everything's working. All I need to do is put in a hood. Yeah. yeah. And so that's kind of what I'm looking at as like, okay, this is an easier situation than going into an older building that's been leased, having to dig up trenches, having to work with what they got. Like, I have a blank slate right now. Yeah. And, and you so hopefully won't get into as many overruns when you realize that the foundation's broken and the roof oh needs to be replaced Lord. and everything no, no, else. No. And like they already have a grease trap and all yeah. that stuff. And, and, and those are things that 1,500 pound yeah, grease trap, like come on. Yeah. <laughs> it's the size for a hotel for my restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so you just need to put the hood. Yeah, I That's just got to put in a hood and some equipment. But the nice thing is that it's just going to be counter service. I, have, I live in a community that really loves to take food home and yeah. I have a lot of customers that are just grab and go. Yeah. So I really want to focus on that vibe. I love that. And, and Nico, yours is going to be called Cultura, right? Yeah, Cultura. So I started with Mansuetas, which is my grandmother's name. And then we're going to turn Mansuetas into like uh, frozen goods, like frozen lumpia, frozen dumplings, a lot, uh, those kind of stuff. And then Cultura is uh, the restaurant that's going to be brick and mortar. Uh, it's based on like me traveling across the country like for the past year and a half after COVID. I just want to continue that, and like the plan is like to bring different chefs from different uh, part of the country, that representing different culture, and bring them to Charleston, and so they can cook there. So we're totally gonna set up. Yeah, some you got one right here. All right, all right, definitely. All right, y'all heard it here. Yes. it's happening. Yes, we are. <laughs> so yeah. And where's that going to be located, or you want to uh, keep it keep it quiet for now? Yeah, right now West Ashley is what we're looking for. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. I mean, I've already, I've got exorcists going through my space right now. So, you know, <laughs> I'm going to wait until they get done to tell people where it is. Yeah. Yep. Well, I've, um, obviously social media is super important for pop-ups. You know, you have to get the word out. And I think both of you guys have sort of ventured into the video world. Um, I know that you were on Chopped <laughs> um, and Nico was on Chopped uh, not too long ago. Yeah. Has that affected your your, your, your pop-up business at all or is it just something fun to do or how's that uh, worked on the business yeah I mean it helps a lot with the business for sure and uh, I had my my past uh, three collaboration like just like a month ago it's all because of Chop like they invited me to go to uh, Savannah uh, Colorado Spring and then I'm going to Montreal next month uh, that helps uh, the business and uh, yeah it, I think just representing my Filipino food in a bigger audience like helps me a lot. I you, you mentioned something earlier, uh, staging, and and Robert wrote uh, in our Charleston's Menu newsletter a really interesting piece about the future of fine dining with the closure of Noma. Um, so I, I wanted if maybe you could talk a little bit about what staging is and. Uh, what maybe your thoughts are on that? Because that's a big conversation right now. Like, should you go and should you should restaurateurs be able to ha hire someone and not pay them to, to work in their restaurant? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, when I do my staging, uh, I, I do a lot of research when I go to that restaurant. Uh, there's, cause like, there's a lot of uh, restaurant, Michelin star restaurant that's like very like stodge, like intense labor. And- uh, Is it like the menu on HBO? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like, when I stage, I don't want to be just picking fl like herbs for like four hours and just like look down in my station. So uh, what I do is like research that restaurant 
and uh, if they allow like start to like be in station every day and like touch every part of that station, I think that's more more important to me than like picking herbs for like hours and hours. Did you ever do any? Uh, nope. Any no. <laughs> nice. I don't think all stages are created equally, uh, and I really do like to pay people when they work. Um, <laughs> But I see the value in it. I do see a significant value in it because you're learning on the fly. You're learning in that environment. Um, but I, I like to pay people. <laughs> I, yeah. 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 I think most would agree with you there. Right? Yeah, so it's like, I remember my last stage was in, I'm not going to say the name. But <laughs> I was literally like picking like fennel flowers for like four hours. That was my first day. I was just looking down the whole time. My neck hurts. And I questioned myself, I was like, what the heck am I doing here right now? Like, why, why am I doing this for two weeks? Yeah, it seems like if the exchange is you're, you're free labor, but you're getting a lot of learning out of it, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's worth it. But if you're just some doing chefs, one task. You're some chefs are excellent mentors in that situation. Yeah. Like, if there's a certain chef that's going to either mentor or help me out in figuring something out that I need for my yeah. business, that's, that's who I stash with because yeah. that's where the value is. Yeah. Yeah. Always do your research when you do Saj. For sure. And uh, I'm sure you guys are oftentimes cooking with recipes maybe that you learned from your childhood. What's it like when you're trying to teach that to someone else? Um, I, I travel how with a spice suitcase, my friend. I travel right. with a whole suitcase that's like a spice rack in a bag. Nice. Um, because sourcing is difficult. Like, yeah. Essentially, over the last six years, I've been in a different kitchen every month. Yeah. And so a lot of them don't carry mustard seeds or lime leaves or pandan leaves. And these are all things that are super central to our cuisines. Yeah. I, I went to Asheville last month to do a, a pop-up there. And uh, I went to the Asian market. It's like a small, smaller than H&L here. And they don't have ube extract. Oh. And I was like, and then they don't have like a jasmine extract. I was like, damn. I'm not going to do my, my dessert like <laughs> the way I'm doing it. It really makes you rethink your menus. Yeah. It's, well, we adapt. Everything works out. You have to out. adapt. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like if something doesn't show up, you have mm. to adapt. Yeah. Things happen. I think the pop-up world has really prepared people to deal with that oh, because yeah. if you're in a restaurant, everything is set by the time service starts. Yeah. If you're in a pop-up, sometimes... Everything goes feeling. wrong. Yeah, everything goes <laughs> wrong. I'm like, why is my ankle in the mud? This is weird. Why is it now flooding? Um, why do? Why are my eyebrows on fire? That has happened <laughs> because somebody thought they were helping. Moved a little butane stove closer to my. Oh my that god! Oh my huge fireball! Oh my hit me in the face. Didn't have eyebrows for a couple weeks. I got them back, but don't recommend. <laughs> well, uh, want to ask you a little bit about the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. How did you end up here, and, and had you been to Charleston before? What's your experience uh, been like in, in our city? This is my second year doing Charleston Wine and Food, and I love it. Um, the amazing culinary director, Gina Berry, is the one who kind of brought me into the fold here. Uh, last year, I did a couple more events. This year, I kind of toned it down, mm. pulled it back a little bit. But the events here are fun. And it's just a really good way to see a lot of different folks, a lot of different styles. And honestly, in the prep kitchens, so many different styles of preparation, cooking, and cuisine. So many chefs in there. Yeah, there's so <laughs> many chefs. And it's just like, 
it's it feels like summer camp. Like yeah. you work really hard, yeah. you sweat a lot, you don't sleep much, but you love everybody at the end of yeah, it. Yeah, it's like Big Brother house in there. It, well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's always something that attendees don't really see, but so behind the scenes, what is the prep kitchen and the and that scenario or like? Where, where do you go to? Behind the scenes, it's intense. Very intense. Oh my God! Like, like everyone is just like. Moving fast, jockeying for stove space. Yeah. Oh, I need that. I needed that oven. Yeah. Well, I need it faster. Okay. One it's Vitamix, one Robo. Fighting over, fighting <laughs> over food processors, <laughs> yeah. fighting over helpers, yeah. um, fighting over a trash can sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like fighting, fighting, but yeah. it's but just you know, nobody needs it, and yeah, somebody's always in your way. When you, you know, I have a very strong forearm arm shove. Yeah. I have a very strong forearm shove for when I need it, <laughs> <laughs> but. Usually, as like the years have gone on, I try to go when it's a little bit quieter. I figured mm. out when it's a little bit quieter, and I try to bring as much prepped as possible for yeah. if it's really big, yeah. because you don't want to have any variables that you can't control mm-hmm. when you have a hundred and other chefs in that situation. Yeah. And I, I know this answer for Nico, but do you have? Uh, do you have a piece of kitchen equipment that uh, is really old, maybe, that you carry everywhere? Or <laughs> something that you need to that's really special to you? <laughs> I'm like the Mary Poppins of coconuts. Um, I take a my gigantic hammer that I've had forever yeah. and a traditional Sri Lankan coconut shredder with me everywhere I go. And it's, it looks like a medieval torture device. <laughs> but it's how I shred coconuts for the right texture, for uh-huh. you know the right impact. And that's pretty critical to me. So I, again, spice case, coconut shredder. I got the whole kit. Yep. And Nico, I know about your equipment because I read Parker's article, but uh, the listeners may not have seen it. What's the one, the, that one piece of equipment you're always carrying with you everywhere? Uh, right now in my car, uh, like uh, a quart, con- a, qu- a, a quart oil of uh, fryer. Mm-hmm. It's like this small fryer, and it works like tabletop fryer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fryer. it works hundred percent. I sent somebody to Walmart or whatever big box store was near that pop up in the middle of a pop up because we had a fryer fail. Yeah, I mean they came back within thirty minutes and we were able to keep going, but you. You learn how to have solutions on hand. Yeah, yeah. Well, we know you guys have a, a lot of a lot going on this weekend, so we really appreciate you joining us. What uh, before we let you go? What else do you have on tap for the rest Thank of the you. weekend? Um, I am very excited to be doing cocktail queens, and I get to make a, a little naughty double deck dish with a little surprise. Mm. Um, and honestly, I'm I'm looking forward to just seeing everybody. Mm. Uh, I have a dinner service tonight for my, my pop-up, and then we're going to go to, I think Butcher and B is doing, like, a closing. We're going to party, and then yeah, I'm going to yeah, fly yeah. away. You deserve well, it. <laughs> yeah. We've earned it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys so much yeah, for well, having thanks, us. Thanks for coming Thank on, you. and thanks for enjoy having the rest of the festival. Thank you. Yeah.